0: Hey, welcome to More To Be Said. I'm here with my friend, Justin White, today, and so if you're tuning in and listening and you're from Kingsway Christian Church, you may notice Justin's name because he recently spoke here for us back in the spring of 2021, and uh, I can't wait for Justin to share some more insight and wisdom with you in his story. So if you're listening out there and you don't go to Kingsway, welcome to tuning in to this podcast. Justin, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to us right now.
1: Matt, it is good to be back, and it's always good to see you, my friend. I know we go back. was it? 20 years now (laughs) i'm too old i'm too old (laughs) too old but it's good to be back i appreciate what you're doing here in avon greater uh, west side of indianapolis and it's uh it's always a pleasure to to see you and and let me just say this i I love what you're doing with this podcast and i love that you're shedding some light on addiction which as you know is uh it's just an issue that means a lot to me and not just addiction but but the the recovery community there is a A solution, there is help, right? Yeah, and um, so that's that's what I'm excited for today. Yeah, I'm serving right now at Mount Gilead Church in Mooresville, and loving that. They, I'm kind of blown away knowing um, that the leaders of that church know my history and know what we've been through as a family. And they were so like, yeah, man, we, we want you to help us grow this uh, recovery ministry. And even uh, we're going to let you, you have a criminal record and you've you've overdosed on drugs. And yeah, we want you to preach on Sunday morning. I mean, it's a totally humbling experience wow. to be doing that. And I can't say enough for Mount, for Mount Gilead church and uh, the leadership there. So it's it's just good to connect. And I know there's so many here at Kingsway that feel the same way.
0: Absolutely. And by the way, praise God for Mount Gilead, one of our sister churches. we love the churches in our community who love Jesus. So we want to promote them as much as possible. So can you tell us a little bit? You kind of just delved on some things you've been through, but some of our listeners do not know your story. And they might be going, wait, what? So do you mind telling us a little bit about that story?
1: Glad to, and and thanks for asking me to do that. Yeah, this is one of those things that, you know, I just never thought would happen to me. You know, there's there's these visions of our lives right that we think oh well, I'm gonna end up here or I'm gonna end up there and they're all typically good things <laughs> they're good places that we want to go and and I had that vision in my mind but then my life took a major detour and it started when I started developing some headaches I was serving as a senior pastor down in Columbus Indiana loved the church love the city uh, my family my, my wife and kids we all loved it down there but I had some headaches and so I went to my doctor like we what we do right and one of the things that my doctor told me to do is take a few medications to try that and one of those medicines was Vicodin, um, hydrocodone, and as soon as some of the people that are listening to this podcast heard those two words, they know where this story is going, right? And very quickly, I went through those pills, took too many, called my doctor and said, hey, I, I think I need some more pills. And he wrote me a new prescription and that cycle continued on for several months. And by the way, I always wanna make sure I'm clear about this. This is not a story about how, how bad my doctor was. I am pro-doctor, <laughs> um, my addiction is my problem, right? But but this is, this is part of the story, right? And so the doctor uh, prescribed me some drugs and continued that process and after six months, Man, I'm hooked, right? And it, it wasn't just the pain medication I was on at the time. I was actually going through some periods of anxiety as well, so I was dealing with some Xanax and overuse of my my Xanax as well. And so that that was the that was the problem, right? I had this narcotic pain pill addiction uh, coupled with an anti-anxiety it's also highly addictive and the problem was after six months man i'm hooked and my prescription didn't cut in it and so at the same time i'd gotten to know another young man in columbus who had a drug problem and in the in the course of our conversation i kind of shared with them hey man i I think i think i'm hooked on my pain pills and what happened next led me to a crossroads Mm. He told me he knew somebody that had some extra pain pills in town and that i could buy them from him if i was interested and i've told you this story before matt you know i wish i could go back and redo that moment and even though god has been so good and so restorative and grace-filled in my life i still wish i could go back and do that moment differently i wish i had gone back and here's what i really would have wished i would have done differently and what i hope we're going to get into later on the podcast i wish i would have been honest and i wasn't i wish i would have been honest with my wife with my doctor, with the leaders of my church. And honestly, I wish I would have been honest with myself and said, you know what? I think I have a problem. I think I've become addicted to these things and I think I need some help, but but that's not what I did. And, and there are several reasons why I didn't do that. But the number one reason is because I was too full of pride and I, and I didn't think I had a problem. And I was trying to just control everything on my own. And so while I wish I could tell you that I didn't buy those pills, I did, as you know the story, and started buying all kinds of pain pills off the street, quickly worked my way up what's called an opioid ladder, right? Started with hydrocodone, then oxycodone, oxycontin, morphine, opana. If it was an opioid, I had to have it. And and, and here's the crazy thing, right? Like I had this great church, I had a lovely house, I had a wonderful wife, three amazing children, our health, tons of friends and family, but all of that- began to quickly fade away because I became completely preoccupied with that drug. My wife didn't know really what was going on. She knew I was acting strange, acting funny, not acting myself. She kind of thought I was having an affair. Oh. Yeah, which wasn't exactly true, but in some ways it was true, right? I wasn't having an affair with another woman, but I was cheating on her, in a sense, with a chemical. Right. Right. And uh, trying to keep everything hidden. Everything is secret. That's what so many of us addicts and alcoholics do. We try to keep the whole thing a secret, even family members. Right. And if you're a family member of a loved one who's struggling with uh, substance abuse, you know what I'm talking about. It's sort of like the family secret. Right. We, we don't want to talk about it. We just want to keep going, get through another day. Because again, at least in my case, I didn't think I had a problem. As foolish as that sounds, I just didn't think I have a problem. Well, after a year of this, things got so bad that I would do anything for more pills, which turned out to be a really bad thing because there came a point when my dealer didn't have any pills and didn't know when he'd be getting any more. And so I started freaking out, at which point he said, man, don't freak out. I got something else for you. Have you ever tried heroin? Mm. And of course, I hadn't tried heroin at that point, but I didn't know that my pain pills were just a version of the same drug that was in heroin. They were were opiates or opioids. And because I was desperate, because I thought I could handle it, because I thought I was in control, I started using heroin and really a combination of anything I could get my hands on, whether that was my own prescription or the pills I was buying off the street, or now the heroin, and of course, the Xanax that I was taking multiple times every day. I mean, I was a mess, Matt. This is, I know this is not the picture you saw of me in, in college. You probably, when you see me now, it's like, how could this have happened to you? But it does happen, right? It happens to so many of us, millions of us in this country that end up in a spot we never thought we'd be in. And really, it was at this point when life went from bad to worse. Every relationship in my life began to deteriorate I was faking it as a pastor I was a terrible friend my my health my physical health was terrible my teeth and my body and just not not good things right didn't have any kind of fruitful relationship with the Lord and, and and my joy for life which had always been really high like I'm a person that really loves life it was gone and I was just living day to day trying to get my next fix I wasn't even using at this point to get high I was just using to not get sick. Oh, just to feel normal. Right. And that that's the stage where a lot of us get to in our use. And by the way, if you're listening today and, and you're struggling with substance abuse, you may even ask yourself that question. Like, why am I using am I am I having to use more and more to get the same effect? And that's a that's danger zone. And I didn't understand it at the time. Here's why I can tell you I didn't understand it. In July of 2015, it was a Sunday night. I, I went to bed before I went to bed. I, I had used some heroin. What I didn't know was that that line of heroin was laced with another drug called fentanyl. We see it in the news. Right. It's a drug 50 times more powerful than morphine, and I overdosed. My wife was sleeping out in the living room that night because she had, a, she had something going on with her neck and um, was sleeping in our recliner. And so at 2.30 in the morning, we had this little eight-pound Yorkie. You probably remember this part of the story. And that little Yorkie knew something was wrong and went and peed at my wife's feet she woke up she came back to the bedroom and realized that i was unconscious so she called 911 the uh, EMTs showed up i'm i'm so thankful in the in the city of columbus at the time not every city had this more and more cities have it now but the the officers in columbus carried a, a drug called narcan which when administered reverses the the effects of an overdose so they gave me they administered a dose to me that dose didn't work they gave me a second dose thankfully that dose did begin to work began breathing on my own came back to life. I was taken to the hospital and four hours later I was sent home. And Matt, the next few hours are such a blur. Really, the next few days were, were a, a huge blur in my mind and, and in the minds of my family as well. We, we had never dealt with this. I, and I'm I'm sad to say, like I had never really walked with somebody, a friend or a family member, or really even somebody in my church in a in a very close, intimate relationship level with somebody that was dealing with substance abuse. We didn't know what was going on. This was new territory for us. What I did know was that something had to change. It was the first time in the months of use, and I know this sounds silly, and it does to me too at this at this point in my life, but. It was the first time i finally said you know what i think i have a problem Mm -hmm. it took overdosing and spending tens of thousands of dollars going tens of thousands of dollars in debt chasing a drug it took almost losing my marriage it took almost losing my career a lot of loss along the way for me to finally say you know what i think i need help like this isn't working anymore Justin's way of dealing with life and trying to keep things a secret and trying to keep things hidden, just keep going on. That's not working anymore. I need some help. And thankfully, help came four days after overdosing. I was on my way up to uh, Minnesota, northeast side of Minneapolis to enter a 30-day rehab clinic uh, called Hazleton Betty Ford. Outstanding place. My parents drove me up there. The last thing I said to my dad before he left was, I can't imagine my life without drugs. Wow. And we're talking, I was just 18 months in. Some people have been dealing with this for years or decades of their life. Can you imagine how they, how panicked or frightened they are when they step into rehab, thinking how their life is going to change? I didn't understand how I could get joy back. I didn't think I could get better. I didn't think I could get healthier. I thought I was too far gone, but I'm thankful to share with you today. As of this past July, I'm now six years clean for my addiction wow, to opioids good. and Xanax and uh, life keeps getting better. So, now um, just to be clear for now this part of my life I have committed myself to helping those who are battling substance abuse chemical dependency we at Mount Gilead we have a, a we'll probably get into this a little bit later we have a, a support group that meets every Monday night it's it's one of the highlights of my week connecting with other alcoholics and addicts and not just them but the, yeah. the family members as well because you know addiction is a family disease right. right and so it's a it's a joy to be able to serve those uh, folks they helped me i hope i hope to help them as well so i spent a lot of time sharing with them connecting with them and also you know you can't really divorce people who are struggling with substance abuse with those that are battling some legal issues as well right Mm -hmm. so along the way and i never thought this would happen but along these last six years i've gotten to be very close with folks who are incarcerated or coming out of incarceration or facing incarceration and so it's a joy to be able to walk with them and be a resource and a support to them as well so that's that's my passion and again matt just thanks for having me here today
0: yeah so i've got a million questions based off what you said so i've sent justin a number of questions like i want to talk about these things (laughs) before we get to those can i let me ask you a couple of these real quick so, you mentioned something quickly called the opioid ladder. Then you kind of flew through that ladder. Not too long ago, I was meeting with my doctor, my PCP, private care physician. And he he was asking me, like, how are you doing? And this was a handful of years ago. I was at a bad place, a real bad place. I was clinically depressed. And that's why I was meeting with him. And then I was being a pastor at that moment. I was like, well, you've been asking how I'm doing. You're offering to prescribe medicines like Xanax. And I said, but how, how are you doing? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really down, to be honest today. And I said, well, you know, what's going on? And he said, you know, there's this massive opioid epidemic in our community, it's in our backyard. And he's telling me stories he saw in the news. and and this was, you know, one of my patients and this is, you know, I know this person, you know, I know a friend of that person, that kind of thing. I'm like, wow, I didn't know. I I don't know. I wouldn't say my head was in the sand. I wasn't connected to the right people. Mm. So I wasn't hearing the stories. So I don't know a ton about opioids. I know a little bit. I know I broke my collarbone playing football. We were Bible college together and I went to the doctor and they prescribed Vicodin for me. And they're like, Hey, take two of these a day, every four to six hours, that kind of thing. And it took me about a day before I literally went, I think I'm addicted and I'm one day in, one day in because I would take the pill. I remember going, going to class, I don't remember what the class was. I remember what I would say is most people take Vicodin, They not most, whatever the numbers, they get tired. I take it and I feel high. Mm. I feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I immediately, I remember at the time, Rachel, who's now my wife, was only my friend. And I looked at her, it was like, all I could think about is going back to the room and taking more pills. (laughs) That's all I could think about. And I'm on day two. That's right. And so what I thought to myself was, holy cow, I got to be careful. Well, by the time I was the end of that prescription, two pills wasn't cutting it. And I thought, so what, what do I do now? Not take it every four to six, take it every two to four. So that's when I went, I got to be very careful. So now anytime I go to the doctor, I have to tell them I could be hooked on these and what, you,
1: what you're doing in that conversation with your doctor is yeah. amazing. And, th- and that's one of the scary parts, right? Like, you don't always know, yeah. okay, am I a person that's going to really kind of like the way these make me feel? Or yeah. am I the person that's going to say, oh, I don't want this. These make me feel weird. Like, I always tease my mom about that. She, you know, she, when she's been prescribed narcotic pain medicine, she's like, I don't want to take these at all. I hate the way I feel. And I always told her, you are lucky. Yes. Praise God. Brian. Praise God. That yeah. it doesn't, doesn't do the same thing it does to me.
0: They make me very happy. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I, I tell my do- and I always tell my wife, I got 12 pills in the bottle. If you ever count and the, there's 10 pills in the bottle, you're allowed to ask me why there's two pills missing, right? That's, healthy. that's That's the only way I know how to manage it. But the I could see in a day or two or a week or two, however long it was when I was out of that prescription, I could see, wow, the effects of this are not as strong. How long does it normally take to climb the ladder? Is it different for everybody? It's typically
1: different for everybody. It is. Some people, Matt, can take their same dosage of hydrocodone because they have a bad back, they could be on that for years and never end up advancing up the ladder. Okay, everybody's body chemistry is different. Because then, on the other hand, you might take a few uh, hydrocodone and be on that for a month and think, "Man, I want some more." And very quickly, you get to oxycodone mm-hmm. and then OxyContin and then you know the sky's the limit. Yeah, that's one of the the tough parts about this thing. Everybody's different, right? But at the same time, if you're if you're someone And if if I can just get straight to what I think we want to talk about today, if you're someone that really likes the way it makes you feel, because that that was me, right? It made me feel good. I I came to a place, I had to come to this realization that there's probably a reason why Mm. those pills make me feel good. And in recovery, I've had to do the hard work of trying to figure out why did those pills make me feel good when I took those and it made me feel like myself or maybe a better version of myself, like what was going on in my mind underneath my skin that I was at a place where I needed those pills to feel right and feel whole that's what you learn about when you enter
0: recovery wow what you just said is so powerful justin uh, for me and hopefully for a lot of people listening that is exactly the thought that was in my head these don't just make me forget the pain because the pain is still there when i broke my collarbone these make me feel at peace with who i am and there now i got some some stuff to think about <laughs> yeah, <I> got, <laughs> justin Come what are meeting, you doing man. later Let's, i'm gonna kick up <laughs> my feet here but yeah. seriously, like, I, I love that there's just two guys being totally vulnerable right now and saying, look, it, it, this can happen to anybody, anybody. Yep. And maybe you're listening and it snuck up on you or it snuck up on a loved one. So would you say one of the signs for maybe, let's say a spouse out there, and it's just not opioid, it could be alcohol, it could be any number of drugs. Pornography. Issues, pornography, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's an addictive personality. you are seeing that more and more. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you start seeing erratic behavior, should that be a sign? And then what do I do when I see the sign? Excellent. Excellent question.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely something to look for in, in a loved one. You see some sort of change in behavior. And, and that's probably true of any kind of mental health issue, right? Whether it's depression or anxiety or maybe an eating disorder, Right, panic attacks, and then certainly with with substance abuse, when you see in a loved one, hey, you're acting a little bit different, something's strange. Yeah, that certainly is an open door for a conversation. The tricky thing is that you don't want to necessarily assume, right? You don't assume and put somebody on the defensive, right? But just to engage in, in, in out of love, just say, Hey, these are the things I'm seeing in you right now. And maybe it's nothing. I'm just, I'm just somebody that cares about you and and loves you and wants to support you. Is everything okay? At Mm -hmm. least it opens the door for conversation.
0: So you would say, take a soft approach first. Don't come right at it.
1: Yeah. I, for for me, that's what works. Here's what happened to me when I started. Uh, when, when I started really investing in the recovery space, like you, uh, I, well, I'm sorry. I would assume for, for most of us <laughs> pastors, yeah, Pat, yeah. we have this we have this love for people that sometimes, if taken to the extreme, we can be guilty of chasing people down. Right and, and trying to be the savior. right? I have been there myself and that, that's it's an unhealthy approach to working with people. I have learned, and, and by the way, when I started in recovery, I saw all these people, I knew all these people that were struggling with substance abuse. And I thought, oh man, if I could just go over there and if I could have a conversation and, and we could connect and I'm going to save them, I'm going to get them the help they need. And you know, I probably helped zero people that way, <laughs> right? It just doesn't work. In order to find success in recovery, somebody has to get to that place on their own that says, you know what, I need help. The way I'm living right now isn't working, isn't ideal. It's not healthy. So part of my story, and we, had, we didn't get into this, is that I did have to do some time, um, some time in prison for some of the choices I made when I was using. And while I was inside, I actually took a class there on substance abuse. And there was, it, it wasn't very good, by the way, but <laughs> there, there, there was, was <laughs> yeah, that, that's another podcast topic for another day. But um, I was really thankful to be in there because I did learn a lot, even though the class wasn't great. I did learn a lot. And one of the things that the guy who was teaching said, look, for most of us who are addicts, in order to find success and to find healing, you have to hate to lose more than you love to win. Ooh. You have to hate to lose more than you love to win. And I didn't understand. That. In fact, I kind of rejected that thought at the time because I'm a big, you know, positive reinforcement kind of guy. Yeah. And let, let's focus on the positive. But, you you know what? He's right. Mm. In order for an addict to find health, they have to hate to lose. What am, what am I talking about? Hate to lose? Well, most of us end up losing our health. Yeah. We end up losing a relationship or a marriage. We end up losing a ton of money. Most of us end up losing a career or losing a driver's license or losing freedom. Yeah. We end up losing something. And at some point we get to that place where we say, you know what? I don't want to lose anymore. I had this dream for my life. And these chemicals are sucking the dream away. And I don't I don't want that anymore. And when you reach that point where you hate to lose even more than you love to win, that will trigger a change, a, st- a step at least. You're not going to have it all figured out at the beginning, but you're going to point yourself in a new direction and that's going to lead you to healing.
0: So you told me, by the way, let me not jump on too quickly. That is so powerful right there. You had mentioned to me one time we're sitting at lunch that you it blew you away in that class you were talking about that wasn't great, but was helpful. You learned a lot that there is something called uh, a disease. Alcohol is a disease. I have heard that, you know, as a pastor, you know, you're told that the disease you have is called sin and that's the real problem. And then you keep hearing this thing called alcohol is a disease, alcohol is a disease. And this is why like an Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step programs, they say, you know, once you're an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you're never going to get over it. You're always going to be sick. You're always going to have this disease. And again, as a pastor, you read these articles, these blogs, these books, and it's like, that's not biblical. That's not from God. That's not the way the Bible describes it. And then I go, gosh, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Help me understand. So you're you're trained in the same Bible college I am. You have many of <laughs> the same theological beliefs and doctrines that I do. Help me see why this is, is a disease.
1: I'm going to do my best, but with one disclaimer. Yes. Um, I am not a trained psychologist. I am not a trained psychiatrist. I am not a, a medical doctor. I'm just sharing what I've learned along my six years. Anybody who's listening, I, I would just encourage you, if you feel like you might be an addict yourself or yourself, you're Substance abuse has gotten a little bit out of control. Find some medical help. Find some. Find a good therapist. Find a great twelve-step meeting. We can talk about resources later. But just just one disclaimer there. Here is the thing that changed my life, Matt. When I stepped into rehab, it was it was. August or the last couple of days of July of 2015, when I stepped into rehab, I had no clue that there were other people like me. I thought I was the world's biggest loser. I thought I had completely messed up my life. I thought I had no chance of finding goodness again and, and grace and, and joy. And so when I when I walked in, I was totally green. I just had no clue what was going on. And one of the things I found while I was at Hazelden Betty Ford in Minnesota was something called the Jelinek curve. If you're listening and you want some more information on it, just, just Google Jelinek curve, J-E-L-L-I-N-E-K. This chart, I know it sounds silly, but it changed my life. Because what they taught me using this chart, and if you think about other kinds of diseases, even think about like COVID, right? There were certain symptoms that started appearing, right? Like if you just, let's just take the COVID example uh, for for a second. And maybe it's not the best because there were a ton of different symptoms. But generally, (laughs) right, we knew there were some aches and pains. There were chills. Dry cough. A, A dry cough. A lot of people lost their taste and smell. Right and fatigue, right? A lot of us that had it were really tired afterwards, right? For maybe a week or two, or maybe even yeah. longer for some people. So there were certain symptoms and you can play that out for pretty much any other disease. And what we found or what, what I found in rehab, that the research that had been done by scientists and doctors and therapists is that just like with COVID, there are, there are certain recognizable, identifiable, specific symptoms that Every person who battles addiction or alcoholism goes through. For instance, at the beginning, during this, it's it's called a a crucial phase. There's an increase in the amount of chemical you need to use. That's That's a symptom. There's another symptom, the, the inability to discuss your problem, right? Most of us enter not thinking we have a problem. We, we've got this under control. Another symptom in this stage is that we promise we're going to do better. We start making promises to the other people in our life that may have, have had the courage to say, Honey, something's not working here. I can tell you're different. Seems like you're maybe drinking a lot more these days. What do we do when we hear that? Oh, well, we say, Oh, you're right, honey. I'm sorry. You're right. It, I've been drinking too much. I'll do better, you know? We start going through that. The neglect of food, the neglect of sex, things that used to bring us happiness and joy, those start to fade away. And these are all parts of the Jelinek curve. Mm. These are symptoms, signs that we all go through that point to this idea that this is not just some moral failure. This is a disease. Now, that's just the first stage of oh, the wow. chelenic curve, okay. right? As you progress, there's a decrease in your tolerance. In other words, you need more and more to get the same effect, right? You find yourself drinking or using with chronic users. You're not just anymore hanging going, out, at hanging bar, out right? going yeah. at the bar, having a couple of drinks and the coming home. No, you're finding yourself in situations where you're with people who use all the time and have to continue to use. All of us find ourselves
0: in that pattern. We yeah. find ourselves with people who have that same. For you, would you say that's when you found the, the uh, dealer? Absolutely. And, okay, that's the moment for you. You crossed to that
1: phase. That's right. I cross, yeah. I, I, I've been through every single one of these phases. And even with my dealer, like I, I would spend time with him and he would help me find, if, if you know anything about getting over opioids, he would help me find Suboxone strips that are supposed to help you get off opioids. So, this very wow. dysfunctional, yeah. unhealthy relationship with other people who are yeah. also battling this same yeah. issue. You become obsessed with drinking. If you talk to any active alcoholic or addict, they will tell you that eventually they got to this point where they became so consumed, so preoccupied so obsessed with their using and by the way i'll just throw this in there are always three p's to addiction okay it's the 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 p is powerlessness Mm. we get to this point where the drug has full power over us we don't we don't stand a chance right powerlessness preoccupation we get to this point where it's the only thing we can think of it's the only thing we want to do and number three progressive it's you're only gonna want more and more. It becomes a bigger part of your life. Those three Ps really help frame this disease of addiction that, that parallel the
0: Jelinek curve. So powerlessness, progressive, and what was the last P? Um, powerless, progressive, and preoccupation. Preoccupation. It's what you think about when you go to bed at night, when you're stressed at work, when you're waking up in the morning, when's my next fix, my next high, when am I going to do this again?
1: That's exactly right. Okay. At the bottom of the Jelinek curve, there's a little circle and it's a spiral, right? And I know you want to kind of, you wanted to talk a little bit about rock bottom, right? Yeah. And that's a place that, you know, for, for most of us with this disease, we have to get. We have to get to. And, and by the way, if you are a parent or you are a spouse of a loved one who is struggling with substance abuse, this is probably the most difficult part. And, and I just want to just speak into you right now because I know this is a very difficult part when you're watching a loved one spiral out of control and you feel like there is nothing you can do. I want you to know there is something you can do. And here it is. Let them. Mm. This is the hardest part because, of course, what are we most afraid of? We're afraid of losing them. We're afraid that they may overdose. We're afraid that they may be driving home drunk. But I'm telling you, we are not in control of our loved ones using. There is one person you're in charge of, and that's yourself. There's one person I'm in charge of, that's myself. We have to let our loved ones hit rock bottom. Of course, you know this well, Matt, that the best book that speaks into this is a book called Boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> Townsend and Cloud, yeah. two of my heroes. I think first of the year, our Monday night group, we're going we're gonna to do a series on that book together. Awesome. It's outstanding. And it's one of the things they they, they talk about in, in the book, that you have to allow your loved ones, even though you're scared for their life or the consequences of their actions, you you have to let them make their own choices in hopes that when they hit rock bottom, and by the way, a lot of us hit rock bottom, we keep digging, right? right? And it may take a while. It may take a few times, but when we get to rock bottom, the only place we can look is up, right? And that's one of the, my favorite parts about the story of the prodigal son. The father in that story let his son do what? To leave, to go. Leave, yeah. go, hit rock bottom, right? He was sitting in the mud with the pigs, eating what the pigs were eating. That was his rock bottom. He blew, blew all of his money, blew all of the, burned all of the bridges with his friends. That's when he finally woke up and said, I hate to lose more than I love to win. And what happened next? He
0: turned around. The Bible says he came to his senses, yep. and he came back home. There, there's a phrase Paul uses in um i think it's in corinthians i can't remember but he talks about handing somebody over to satan Mm. for the destruction of the flesh Mm. so that on the day of christ's return they'll be able to praise him powerful it is so i think it's the exact same thing he's building off luke 15 right it's this whole thing about let this person have what they want and pray to god that that leads them to go wow this didn't have in it what i hoped it would have this didn't do what i thought it would do Years ago, I was watching, um, I love sports stuff. And I was watching, I can't remember now if it was ESPN or Sports Illustrated, or what I was watching. There's a major league baseball player, and I can only remember his name is Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember his last name. And uh, anyway, I'm looking at our, our sound guy, Derek, and he's trying to figure out who I might be talking about. <laughs> anyway, and Josh had won MVP. I think he played for the Rangers and somebody else. And he's been he's been in and out of league. He struggled with major alcohol addiction. But this thing I was watching was an interview with his parents. And I remember them um, telling a story like they had kept giving him money to get yes. out of trouble and to help him and that kind of thing. And finally, they had come to the conclusion, probably through counseling, that they could no longer support him because they were only keeping him stuck. They were, and I think they used the phrase- That's a great line, by the way. Yeah, they were keeping him stuck. They were keeping them stuck. Yeah, yeah. And you see that all the time. Yeah, and I tell the story to parents all the time who come to me struggling. They were effectually being enablers. I want you to talk a little bit about what enabler is, but they told the story that was so powerful to me, uh, not to me, uh, the story was powerful to me, they didn't tell it to me. It was on TV. And anyway, uh, if I remember the story correctly, One day Josh had come to the house and he was just a mess. And he said, I think he said he needed like $2,000. And his dad said, son, I cannot give you the $2,000. He's like, dad, if you don't give it to me, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to kill me or beat me up. You don't understand what these men will do to me, dad. I have to give them the money. And he said, son, I can't give you the money. But if you come inside the house, I promise I will spend every dollar I have. I will sell everything to make sure you get all the help you need. If you just come in, I will help you, but I cannot give you the money. And he said, um, I just made this had this conviction deep in my heart and finally, you know, Josh begged to beg. Finally, he left the house. He goes, and I shut the door and I just fell down there and I just wept because I knew Mm. I was handing my son over to be killed. Mm. They were going to kill him. And I don't remember anything that happened after that, but here was Josh. He actually, he ended up going back into his alcohol at some point. Mm. I don't know where he is today. But at this point in his story, I remember him saying that was a critical moment because he knew he had no other options Mm. and he had to go deal with and face the problems that he had built. And his dad said it was terrible because I felt like if my son dies, it's my fault. Mm. But I had to rationally work myself through it and say, this isn't my fault. I
1: have to let him make these choices. That's exactly right, man. I love that story too. And and by the way, when we talk about that gelinic curve, yeah. and you, you're kind of getting into it. But what I was just describing a second ago are the symptoms going down. Right, right. But there are just as many symptoms that show up when you get help yeah. and you start putting the pieces back together in your life. And millions of people do this. Ah. It, it is possible you can get better, and really, you you take the same steps to get better as you do, you know, going down. I mean, there, there are there are similar steps going down for all of us, and there are similar steps going up for all of us. Yeah, and that's that's the cool part of it. That that helped kind of frame this idea. So, what
0: are what are some of those steps? Let's give some hope. And now I want to come back and talk about enabling and what is that. Go ahead. Sure.
1: Well, it, it's all framed under this idea that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Mm. The opposite of addiction is connection. And so, so many of us end up in rehab, finally connecting in an honest, authentic way with other people who get it, who mm-hmm. understand our disease, right? And that that's important. That's the first piece of connection, meeting with somebody who gets it. I remember, Matt, I sat in the first couple of days of rehab. I sat I had to go through a, a medical detox for about 24 hours, and then I was placed in a in a unit, all male unit. We would go listen to different lectures throughout the day, different seminars, and come back. And one of the things we had to do in our in our unit was have a, a processing session, right, sort of small group time. And I remember the very first day I was in that unit, we sat down after listening to this lecture for processing time, and I heard all these guys who I I had never met before, and they said their first name and then what they struggled with. So like one of them would say, Hey, my name is Joe and I'm an addict or my name is Steve and I'm an alcoholic. And it went around the room and I could not believe it. Like I was thinking to myself, how, how can you be that? Open, just with that one statement. How can you be that open and transparent with the thing that you're struggling with? And I was so blown away that there was such an honest, authentic transparency in the room. And that was so contagious. That taught me so much. I went home and talked to my therapist after rehab about it. And he said, Justin, can you imagine if the church got that? Amen. And I thought, oh, man, and I just kind of melted because for far too long, Matt, I, as a church leader, I was so guilty of wearing masks and not being open with what I struggled with. Um, it's one of the reasons I respect you as a leader, Matt. For you sure. have a a transparency with your congregation that is not common with a, a lot of church leaders. And so I, I commend you for that. And I applaud you for that. and I respect for you sure. for that. I would even, the, the first few days after I got home from rehab, I would drive like 20 or 30 minutes away to go to a 12-step meeting because I, I still didn't get it. Even coming out after rehab, I just didn't understand, hey, it's okay for people to know you struggle with opiate addiction. Like, that's a thing, right? And it's okay, um Thankfully, God has helped me through that, and He's helped helped me overcome that. You, you had asked, I think, for some different symptoms on the way up. Yeah, right? yeah. What are some of the signs you see on the way up? Sure, sure. Uh, you, you're meeting former addicts, and you're you're seeing in them there's a there's sort of a normalness and a happiness about them that I want and that I need. You get an onset of new hope. Most addicts and alcoholics describe a new spiritual awakening that happens as a result of you coming out of addiction, coming out of a chemical dependency, and now your mind, body, and spirit are all start, starting to sink together again. A lot of people, and I would be one, can describe a sort of spiritual experience that begins to happen. You go back to realistic thinking. So many times in our chemical dependency, we, we have these grandiose thoughts, we have dysfunctional thoughts about relationships, we use people, we manipulate people. That starts to fade away, and we start thinking, more realistically. We're able to to control our emotions when before they were so out of whack. Now we're able to control our emotions and even feel some things that we haven't felt for a while. I hadn't cried in a long time. Wow. And then when I broke out and my mind and my body and spirit, were were starting to get healthy again and reconnecting. I could, I could cry at the appropriate times. Right. And then there's this new contentment in sobriety. So, and those are just a few things I w- again, I would encourage you to check it out. Jelinek curve, yeah. uh, Google that.
0: And um, I think it's helpful. You know, you said earlier about the, your, your therapist, I think it was, you said, said to you, man, imagine if the church could become that uh, years ago years ago i was mentored by a gentleman who had fallen into sex addiction and uh, started with pornography and then it progressed into adulterous relationships and then he had to spend some time with what's called sa or saa technically sexaholics anonymous it's the same thing as aa for um, alcoholics but he spent some time in that and then at the, the point that i met him he was an elder at his church which was not any of the churches that i've worked in or working now for anybody out there who's curious and he was my mentor and he made a couple powerful statements like one nobody else really Really in the church he was serving in knew about it. His wife very, very, very much so knew about it. They had healed, dealt with it together. She had not left him. She stayed with him. He's forever grateful. But he said this, he said, Matt, I never experienced church like I did when I was in SA. Amen. And he said, I he said, I knew he goes, there are some people who became addicted to SA. The only reason they were they were clean, the only reason they were sober is they were white knuckling their way through. And the group was the only reason. He said, For me, I the spirit convicted me I needed to find a way to move forward with my life without always doing SA. And that's why I want to get to this like disease thing and like what does that, is that true for everybody? Is he unique in that way? Because he still dealt with it. There were still seasons of fasting and struggle and hardship and that kind of thing. But he would go to his wife. He had a few people in his life he could go to. But he told me, he said, Matt, he goes, I miss it. I crazy miss the community I experienced there because I could be vulnerable and never wonder if people were going to judge me.
1: Amen. And aren't, aren't we glad? That those groups exist. Praise God. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have certainly felt that way before. I have certainly felt that in the groups that I've been a part of, that they're in some ways, not every way, yeah. but in some ways they are a closer representation to what I envision the early church yeah. to be like. Right. right? This yeah. authenticity, the sharing of one sharing one another, this almost meeting daily concept right. in each other's homes. There's a a, a different kind of a warmth. And here was the thing for me, Matt, and to, that, to your point, when I started really digging into the 12 steps, you know what hit me? This is discipleship 101. <laughs> right. This is New Testament Christianity, yeah. Yeah. right? It's this process of, first of all, realizing I'm not God. Secondly, He's in control. Third, He can do something for me that I can't do on my own. On my own right i mean we preach that all the time right but that's that's the 12 steps yeah right yeah. and and, it, and it's fun and to and he wants to do it through others and he wants to do it through others yeah that's right and giving back is a part of it yep and trying to bridge the gap between dysfunctional relationships trying to mend those that's part of it right yeah. it's it's all new testament christianity right <laughs> whether you're whether you're a believer that goes to aa or not it's yeah. it's it's new testament christianity
0: yeah okay so we touched on a couple things i want to come back and visit um you mentioned something earlier i thought i'm just going to throw this out there because i can't remember how you said it you said something it was in that process of talking about let somebody that you know they got the keys and they want to drive like there's sometimes you just got to say i can't stop you like anymore there's one thing like i'm fighting to protect you another thing like i'm fighting with you i can't stop you but years ago i started encouraging parents to pray the most dangerous i call it the most dangerous prayer you're ever going to pray and here's the prayer it sounds something like this dear god please do whatever needs to happen in this person's life that I love. Insert the person's name, my son, my daughter, my husband, my spouse, my parent, whatever it is, whoever they do, whatever you need to do. And if they need, if they need joy and blessing and favor, God, would you just bless their socks off? But if they need to experience pain and discipline, even possibly suffering in order for them to come back to you, then God do whatever needs to be done. And I tell you, I have had about a handful of people that have boldly prayed that. And they come back and tell me later, Oh my gosh, it worked. Our lives are falling apart. Our daughter has been arrested. Our son has mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. There was this terrible accident. There's an injury now. there's gonna be all these major surgeries. But Matt, we literally were praying it last week. And now, now it's like there's this brokenness and repentance because this thing has happened. And I, it's great. Again, I've only had about five of these. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, but what a powerful one. It is. It's it's powerful. I'm glad you shared that with me. I want to pray that prayer
1: myself <laughs> in, yeah. in certain situations as well. But Matt, isn't it true? It's It's through pain that we find yeah. the greatest blessing. It really is. We we in Western society, even, even Western church, we are so scared of pain. Yeah. We try to protect ourselves from pain and suffering, but starting in the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and through all the generations since, what we find is that so many amazing things happen not through blessing so much, but through pain. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I love my wife. She she's been through a lot. This is not this journey is not what she signed up for. When <laughs> we said I do, thankfully this past July we celebrated 20 years together and. Um, We we celebrated in New York City a couple weeks ago, and I, like so many of us do, we uh, we went down to the World Trade Center site. And as soon as I got off the subway and walked on those grounds, have you been
0: there? No, not since nine eleven. I've been pre nine eleven. Okay.
1: Well, just walking on those grounds, you know, it it felt like holy ground. You know, you've you've seen the images for years, and we were just walking around and thinking about everything that happened there. And I, of course, every time I think about nine eleven, I don't know about you, but I always think about nine twelve and Mm. the tone in the country in those in, in that day afterward yeah. and in the days and weeks after there's this sense of humility in our country and unity in our country yeah. many people would point to that day as as a as a day of coming together this yep. that so many good things happen as a result of that terrible day and not that we want pain to happen right not that we are glad 9-11 right. happened but good things do happen out of pain certainly in those facing addiction
0: there's this passage in the Old Testament. I realize not everybody listening here today is a Christian, and, and I get that. So please bear with two pastors who <laughs> just can't help ourselves, can't can't help ourselves the times. But uh, years ago, uh, another mentor of mine, he read this passage. I was going through a hard season, and I was seeing this this counselor, therapist guy, and he was helping me walk through some things. And he used this passage, and I went, I've read my Bible. I don't remember that passage before. And you know how it is? Like, passages don't stand out to you until you need them. And then all of a sudden, it's like, that's why we call the Bible God's Word. We call it living and active. And in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20, God says, or it says, Actually, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Mm. your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Oh man, where is that again? Isaiah thirty twenty. Oh boy. And then he goes on: whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, "This is the way; walk in it." Outstanding. And so powerful. Again, this is idea. Like, like we don't think of God. Like God is not with us if I'm experiencing pain, and God says, "No, no, no. I gave you the bread of adversity. Mm. I gave you the water of affliction. Mm. I was disciplining you, like a father disciplines a son, because what good father doesn't discipline his sons? Right? right? Unfortunately, the answer is today, but God is a good father. And so he does discipline because he wants what's best for you. So good.
1: So good. And I missed that for so many years of my life, Matt. Yeah, too. And um, if you're listening today and you have someone that is struggling in your life and you're thinking, I just don't know. I just love him so much. I don't want to, I, I, I want to give him the money, you know, when they ask for it. And I want to, you know, I'll, I'll take care of his kids when he asks me to do it. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do in love, if you really love this person is to say no and stop the
0: cycle. We're going to wrap this up and we'll come back and do another podcast with Justin. So if this was encouraging to you, a blessing to you, and you want some more help, some more resources, um, tune back in and Justin's going to talk to us a little more and tell us about how you could connect with his ministry and some other resources out there for you. We hope you're blessed. God bless you.